Thank you everybody for attending and uh, I'm looking forward to questions during it so feel free to just type in questions and uh, I'm also looking forward to people contacting me after to continue discussion. Um, this presentation is the about the survivor bias principle which is a really cool statistical principle that you don't have to be a statistician to enjoy. Uh, conceptually it's really neat and um, I think that uh, I think that what we'll find is that you can take it every day and in even analysis without data, um, apply it. So for those who don't know me, I'm Adam Barrett. I'm the owner of Apex Ridge Reliability, you know, reliability engineering consulting firm. And uh, you can of course go to apexridge.com or just email me at abarrett at apexridge.com. Uh, you see there in the picture is uh, my first book, which is uh, How Reliable Is Your Product? I co-wrote with Mike Silverman. And uh, exciting is that uh, coming up next year uh, will be my second book, Reliability Culture, How Leaders Can Create Organizations That Create Reliable Products. So that'll be coming out in the spring um, from Wiley. So let's jump right into it. I'm sure you don't wanna hear any more about me. <clears throat> How many times have we seen musicians and movie stars uh, stand on a stage and tell us to follow our dreams. If we do, anything is possible. This must be the difference between us and them, right? They followed their dreams and we didn't. Well, before you blindly follow your dreams, we should expand the data set a bit. We need to dig deeper. Not just making a conclusion with the data set that fell in front of us. If we were thorough, we would start a significant undertaking. We need to go out there and find the millions of individuals that followed their dreams and never got to stand on a stage and tell us how it turned out. We'll need to interview every person working in an office, behind a fast food counter, and each successful business leader on a golf course. Then include that data set with the stars who are absolutely sure they figured out the single key to success. Our complete data set would look different. It would have people who followed their dreams, but end up being extremely smart or talented people who are working for minimum wage. It would include people who enjoy their work, but it is some derivative of their dream, people who enjoy their work even though it is an entirely different profession than their dream. And then there would be the smallest group, which would be people who follow their dreams in their purest form and are now holding an Oscar, gold medal, or Nobel Prize. The truth would be that there are many factors in regard to where you end up. The most visible data set, STARS, was in fact a minority, and all from the same bias, those that succeeded. We're going to talk about the survivor bias principle, and that's an example of it. And we're going to talk about how it has derailed so many data-driven initiatives, including my own. I have personal experience with this. This is the definition of the survivor bias principle. The survivor bias principle is the logical error of concentrating on data that made it past some selection process and overlooking those that did not, typically because of their lack of visibility. I'm sure this principle has been applied by many wise people throughout human history. It was given a name and became a permanent part of statistics analysis during World War II. This is how I like to look at the story behind when the principle took shape. It's a story with heroes that saved lives and brought defeat to enemy in battle. 
We all know that smarts are better than brute force. Are geeks useful in wartime? Turns out one statistician could be far more deadly in combat than any soldier on the ground. The US Pentagon knew this as well. <clears throat> in an unmarked building in Harlem, New York, the Pentagon set up a think tank. Many residents of New York walked past this innocuous building having no idea that superheroes were inside saving the lives of US soldiers. It was the big brain Avengers. The supergroup was filled by hand-picked super geniuses from across the country. The Pentagon's mission was simple, get smart people to solve difficult problems. That group was going to use their brains to help the US win the war. An elite group of commandos called the statistics, mathematics, and oops, sorry, on keyboard. The statistics, mathematics, Termin Terminator Battalion. If that's not what it is, it was their statistical research group. Unfortunately, they were allowed to name it themselves. So here's how it worked. Somewhere inside the vast machinery of war, a commander would stumble into a problem. That commander would then send a request to the head of the statistics and math terminators battalion. It's my presentation <clears throat> and that's what I wanna call them. The battalion would then assign the task to the team they thought would best be able to resolve the issue. Scientists in that group would then travel to Washington and meet with top military personnel and advisors and explain to them how they might go about solving the problem. It was basically the geek squad for issues with the war. In a moment, we will get to the event that created the survivor bias principle. We will also talk about why this plane apparently has chicken pox, and it turns out the Air Force generals were anti-vaxxers, and that's pretty much the entire principle. So we'll conclude the webinar now. Thank you very much for attending. No, first I want to give you a taste of what these elite commandos could do. The Navy had a problem. They would track enemy ships and fire torpedoes from stealthy submarines to sink them. Torpedoes from the 1940s were nowhere near as effective as today's torpedoes. They missed their targets far more than hitting them. <clears throat> There's even an example of a submarine torpedoing itself due to a desperate attempt to improve hit rates by using a complicated maneuver and new self-steering torpedo technology. Things weren't going well in the torpedo department for the US. So what did they do? They called war tech support and asked for help. The Navy desperately needed to know what was the best possible pattern or spread of for a spread of torpedoes to launch against large enemy ships. All they had to go on were a series of hastily taken blurry black and white photographs of turning war vessels. The panel handed over the photos to one of the group and asked for them to report back when it had a solution. The warrior mathematicians solved the problem almost as soon as they saw it. They first did their homework and found that Lord Kelvin, <clears throat> that Lord Kelvin had, that, uh, sorry, I'm, I have like three screens going here, so I'm trying to do the controls. Uh, found that Lord Kelvin had already worked out the calculation in 1887. That's the same guy that made it glaringly obvious that their Fahrenheit temperature scale was lacking. It also seemed 
too often. He also seemed too often to get into trouble when hanging with his friends. So you can tell by the picture, he looks like he's super fun. So just look at this pattern in the waves. They explained, see how they fan out in curves like an unfurling fern? The spaces tell you everything. They give it all away. Work out the distance between the cups, cusps of the bow waves and you'll know how fast the ship is going. But Lord Kelvin hadn't worked out what to do if the ship was turning. But this was not a problem for our super math battalion. The mathematicians scribbled on notepads and clacked on blackboards until they had both advanced the field and created a solution. They then measured the wavelets on real ships and saw their math was sound. The Navy now had the ability to accurately send a barrage of torpedoes into a turning ship based only on what you could divine from the patterns in the waves. Warships were stopped by a few, a few clacks on a clackboard. Statistics and Math Terminator's battalion really did a fantastic job. So how about this fiber bias principle? When the battalion was called in this time, it wasn't to address a problem at sea. It was to address a problem in the air. Bombers didn't always come back home. That's an understatement. There were periods in the war where your chances for returning from a bombing run <clears throat> were 50-50. So clearly one of the least preferred assignments for a pilot was manning a bomber. <clears throat> Fighter jets have a chance beyond just raw statistics of surviving. They at least get to bring skill into the equation. Bombers weren't that much different than kamikaze fighters. It was just Russian roulette instead of straight up suicide. Shooting a bomber down was easy for a few reasons. They flew on predictable paths right over areas that had plenty of time to prepare anti-aircraft guns. They were attacked by waiting fighter planes. Compared to a fighter plane, they were slow and couldn't maneuver quickly. That 50-50 statistic seems kind of generous when you think about what they were up against. The question the Pentagon had was simple. How can bombers' survival rate be improved? They had tried many approaches to minimizing the number of hits a plane took while flying its run. They provided specific turning sequences that would make tracking their path more difficult. Although these new paths eventually became predictable as well. Those, ta the, <clears throat> those tactics were just a cat and mouse game that barely changed the bomber fatality statistics. So what should they do next? What about making the planes better at taking the hits? The Army knew they needed armor to protect their planes, but the question was, where should they put it? Where do you put armor on a plane is a big question. You can't just cover the entire plane with armor. It wouldn't be able to fly. Each pound added to the plane is either less fuel, less munitions, or less speed. It was critical to apply armor in the most conservative and effective manner possible. The military decided to study every returning bomber and carefully document the damage they incurred and create a database. Understanding how the planes were being hit was a critical piece of understanding how to better protect them from flak and gunfire. They overlaid the patterns <clears throat> for damage on the returning planes all in one drawing. 
this is what they saw. They handed the data to the super battalion. It was a very clear picture. The tail section, center of the fuselage, and wingtips were being hit most often. This is where extra armor should be added. This is what the military expected to hear in response to their inquiry. But Abraham Wald, a statistician at the Statistical Research Group, made a glaring observation. Abraham said, gentlemen, you need to put more armor plate where the holes aren't, because that's where the holes were on the airplanes that didn't return. So the military would have made a terrible mistake by upgrading the armor along the sections of the plane that were regularly hit in the data set. The military was only looking at the damage on return planes. It was an incomplete data set. So the planes that didn't return were the ones that sustained damage in ways not seen on the planes that did. The drawings actually showed the locations a plane could be hit and still return. Unlike the body, tail, and wingtips, the engine was extremely vulnerable. Once hit there, planes went down. The cockpit was extremely vulnerable. An injured or dead crew or damaged controls make it impossible to guide the plane back home. Clearly, there is great structural vulnerability in the rear of the fuselage as well, but not in the midsection. These were the data points missing. These are the data points that would have taken a tremendous initiative to acquire. In this case, it would have been very difficult to obtain the complete data set, would have been sneaking across enemy lines and studying aircraft wreckage. But the information that data set could provide was already in their hands. If the correct assumptions were applied, with the understanding that they had a truncated data set that was biased to survivors, and then adding the fact that airplanes were likely hit in all locations because anti-aircraft fire was not accurate at those distances. Once we framed the data set, we had correct <clears throat> it had correctly told us a very clear story. So we know that following your dreams is not the only factor in success, and that airplanes that come home were shot in non-critical locations. What does this have to do with our product development work? So I want to ask right now if there is anybody there who can share any information or has a question regarding product development and data sets that have this bias principle in them. I'll give a second for people to type. If there are questions, I can't see them. Um, so Fred, if you can, you're welcome to chime in and share them. Yep, no, Adam, I'm not seeing any on this end. Okay, <clears throat> okay. So let's take a moment of honest reflection here, because even though you didn't ask questions, I'm confident that uh, we're hitting upon some things that uh, might. There's a couple. There's a couple. Oh, do you have them? Okay. Yeah. Let's see. Do you see them? Uh, I do not. All right. Let me push them through and then you'll see them. 
And make sure you show answered questions also. Yep, that's what I have. Okay, should have two of them now. I do not. All right, well, let's do plan B. Um, Paul is mentioning that warranty. We only see those items that have failed. That's a good point, Paul. And Emrit says, our team has had done a similar analysis for sensors failing under guillotine shock. We also looked at parts which survived apart from the ones which failed. Okay, another good comment. Yeah, what's guillotine shock? I think it's a sharp shock, a sharp impact or, shock, or drop, something like okay. that. So literally a guillotine. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, warranty is a great example of how you can get trapped um, by this survivor, you know, bias principle, because you are in fact seeing uh, what is going to be returned, but that's not, that's not the only bias that's in there. You're seeing only units. Um, you're not seeing only units that have failed. You're seeing only units that have been returned by warranty there are quite often a lot of other failures that are either not returned or bypassed the warranty system. So you're actually seeing another uh, uh, subset of your true full data set just with the warranty. There are uh, some of the users who might cause failures with certain types of treatment, might be the same personality type to just throw out the product and not try to get the warranty claim because that takes effort. So it's another way that the data set can become truncated. <clears throat> All right, so you don't have to admit the following out loud, but acceptance is the first step of moving forward. So here's a, uh, a few questions, and I'm going to put up some very peaceful images uh, so that we can take a moment of reflection and, and, uh, and, and then see if we can work through this. So do we ever do data analysis slowly with the available data set? The old one, someone conveniently handed to us when we started a project. Own first assumption about the constraints around a data set. Do we ever just take the assumptions provided to us by an outside source as fact instead of questioning them? Do we ever edit our data sets as we collect them? So I hope I was able to keep that peaceful while we uh, recall those moments that uh, may have been tragic or caused great pain. Um, so if you answered no to those questions, I'm going to say you might be dishonest um, because I do all of those on a regular basis. Um, if, <clears throat> so let's dive into those uh, and a few other common mistakes in data analysis. So we'll start off with the easy data set, also known as do we ever do data analysis with the data set someone dropped on our desk? So We'll take a look at this one in a story. Stephanie uh, is an engineer. I'm not going to use her real name, Nicole, because I saw that she logged into this webinar. Uh, Stephanie uh, just joined a new company and will be the senior reliability engineer on a legacy product program. The product does extremely delicate measurements autonomously at ground level for a five-year period before being serviced. These units were used in all kinds of extreme locations all over the world. She would be the first reliability engineer on this project in its 15-year history. Previously, these, the tasks she would be taking on were carried by individuals from different departments. This company was just figuring out that they needed 
reliability engineer involved in field issues. That's the only way that they were going to take this under control. The field issues have previously been handled by many others. And so Stephanie is extremely welcome to the new company with great enthusiasm. I mean, who wouldn't be excited? She was there. When the honeymoon period ended, which was probably about four hours, she was bombarded with main individuals from several groups joyfully dropping their data set summaries and past presentations in her inbox. So that's why she was hired, to make sense of what is going on out in the field. Stephanie jumps in and starts going through these large data sets. The task is tremendous because the data is coming from so many different sources. One source is data manufacturer, customer, and product logs, but no failures reported. They're not labeled. A second set has failure types clearly identified and grouped, but all the failure dates suspiciously lump into only four dates of the year, each perfectly spaced by three months. Stephanie suspected that the units were not, in fact, all failing on March 25th, June 20th, September 30th, and January 4th. It's quite possible the customers or distribution center were holding the units and logging them all at once instead of having the field log the time of removal when the part was pulled. Nicole and Stephanie hit the task full force and plowed through the data. She did the best she could and actually came up with some good conclusions. She found out ways to match the data sets and organize it in manners that told clear stories. She found that clearly there was a correlation between geographic location and failure rate by looking to the types of terrain and matching it to the data sets. It looked like wetland had a correlation with failure rate. She brought Pareto charts to management meetings that showed the high hitters were, what they were, and what she believed were the key factors tying them together. She should have been a hero, she wasn't. Her summaries drove deeper investigations into wetland areas. With limited field resources meant that investigations of units from other areas did not receive the root cause attention they could have. Stephanie's mistake was that her parados of what had happened weren't tracking at all with what was being reported currently in the field now that field service engineers were out there regularly pulling clean data sets. What field service had done was start a campaign to get customers involved in making all the pertinent information associated to the failed units logged in one place. Stephanie just treated all this new information and data as info to process after she completed organizing the original data set. She then gave it equal weight in the analysis. Stephanie was so hyper-focused on getting the data set that was handed to her under control, she never realized how she could have worked with a more mature data set by just stopping and reaching out to those in the front line. In fact, in this case, the failures had nothing to do with wet climate. The pattern had to do with <clears throat> contracted service companies. The customers that did their field service and PM work themselves saw the issue on an order of magnitude, scale lower. These were customers that contracted out their service installation, PMs, and service to a third party. Those third parties typically serve specific regions covering multiple customers. These third parties were never trained in the correct methods of ins installation and service. This created great variability in correct installs and handling. In fact, it was even found that these third parties paid their employees by number of units serviced. This incentivized the technicians to change other units in the field when they were called out for a single unit issue. Why not while you're already out there? And it also added nicely to the paycheck. It was just a coincidence that these third parties had an overlap with wetter climates. 
In fact, in the more complete data set, that overlap was much less significant. Hope everybody's still feeling calm, even, even if you have any uh, shared experiences with this or this is a trigger in any way. So selective data collection, also known as, do we ever edit our data sets as we collect them? Instead of giving a product example of how this can occur, I'm gonna give a personal example you've likely experienced. You may not even realize that you edit this data set on a regular basis until I describe this example of a catalyst for how you record data. Have you ever been driving your car on a narrow, windy backcountry road? Have you ever come across a person on a bicycle went on a road, went on, went on this uh, back windy road? They may be in your lane to one side, riding the shoulder so you can pass. You, of course, want to make as much room for them as possible because bicycles can do a number on your paint job. So you veer a bit into the oncoming lane to give them ample room. But wouldn't you know it, here comes a car in the oncoming lane. This is gonna be a tight squeeze as we all pass each other at the same time. Why does this happen so often? The statistical likelihood that most of the time I pass a bicycle and there's a car coming the other way is uncanny. It shouldn't be this high. It's almost impossible, <clears throat> like I'm in the Truman Show type of conspiracy to make my driving more exciting to watch. What if I'm not pulling from a complete data set on that conclusion? Is it possible that in fact, there are more times I pass a bicycle, a bicycle and there's no car coming in the opposite direction? That would make more sense. The oncoming car is a minor event in the bigger picture. In fact, I believe that we aren't editing, editing our data set as we analyze it. We are editing it as we record it. I don't record the instances when I pass a bike and there's no stress added to the maneuver by an oncoming car. Those events just get left in short-term memory to slowly fade away as I fill my head with other inconsequential events from later in the day. I have biased the data regarding passing bicyclers on the road by only transferring the stressful situations to my long-term memory. In some way, the oncoming car is the catalyst that makes the event of passing the biker become a stored data point. In these types of situations, in product data analysis, what's worse? Not having the complete data set or not knowing I don't have the complete data set. If I have an incomplete data set and don't take action to do this, then I have not wasted resource or even possibly made a situation worse. If I think I have a conclusion based on a complete data set and take action, I'm likely to get myself into more trouble, even if it's just wasting valuable time and resource. So having a strange conclusion like cars, that uh, are in the oncoming lane, 70% of the time I pass a bike, should flag something is wrong with my data set and bring into question the aspects in regards to how it was collected. So I'd like to ask, has anybody had a data set that seemed complete and they drew a conclusion and it was a gut feeling that helped them flag and look at it closer? And Fred, I'm probably gonna need your help here again since my question uh, oh, wait, all the questions just uh, came up. Somebody said something about their Dodge Durango. Let's see what that's about. My Dodge Durango, Durango had an intermittent failure that would cause it to stall and to intermittently not start. I took it to the shop five times. Because it was intermittent and they didn't see it when it was in the shop, they would not admit my, ve not admit my vehicle had the problem. Right, 
so which is kind of interesting then if you also think from their perspective of you know if you put yourself on the other side if you are an interested engineer in how the product's doing in the field those type of issues are going to create you know a data that's hard to work with it's going to be in those no fault founds which we often you know have a lot of our data get labeled and that can end up being a pretty tall column um where there is something going on and you might actually get so frustrated that you eventually just get rid of the vehicle and, and the true root cause is never found so this is where closer relationships you know with the customer can uh, have a big effect on a cleaner data set all right so we have a question from joseph here how do you develop a mean time to failure measurement early in entry into service when not all units are returned for testing and a full data set is not available. Well, <clears throat> this is where internal reliability growth programs can be extremely helpful. So in reliability growth, we look to run our products in use cases that are most close to what we believe that, you know, the customers and how they're gonna use it, their use case. And we look to collect runtime and failures, and we're hoping to create a data set that allows us to project what the mean time to failure will be in the field. But of course, this is a very data starved uh, point in the program because you need a lot of runtime with systems uh, to generate that data. And also by the time you get fully complete systems and a good amount of them, uh, the team wants to start shipping to the field. So this is where it can be very helpful to extend the reliability growth program into the field and see if there's customers you can work with where you can get uh, easy, you know, data, an easy data connection with them, where, you know, offer them some benefit, you know, effectively, you know, some discount for being a part and cooperating in the program. They also get special attention, which they enjoy to issues that occur. And you get to continually grow that data set and you don't have to question if it's accurately representing the field because it is the field. So here is a question from Amrit. Our team had done similar analysis for sensors failing. Oh, it's the guillotine shock one. Okay, I think we're up to those questions. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. I greatly appreciate the questions. And uh, please, you know, everybody else, can feel free to continue ailing them. And when I stop for the next question, I'll, I'll look back to that point. So data dredging. Let's say you have a great data set and you've successfully tested your hypothesis it might be tempting but don't make the mistake of testing multiple new hypotheses against the same set of data while this may seem like an easy way to get the most out of your work any new correlations you make will likely be the result of chance because you've pri you're primed by your first result to see connections that aren't actually there these coincidental correlations are not meaningful indicators. So anybody who would like to comment on that, anything associated with that with <clears throat> data dredging, which I think we've all done, which kind of comes back to what I was talking about with being data starved, right? We begin to try to do as much possible with whatever information we have and can in fact, it can in fact take us in a uh, the wrong direction where if we had just stopped, we would be in a better place. Oh, here's more. Okay. Uh, let's see. Ah, this is also they uh, for the Dodger angle. They had five million other data points, and I don't own the vehicle anymore. So clearly, a disappointed customer that's moved on. Um, let's see. All right. 
By RGA, you mean Crow-AMSA model or the Duane model? So with uh, reliability growth analysis, um, I'm talking about collecting runtime and um, <clears throat> failures and transla usually translating by like a chi-square distribution to uh, give a statistical confidence in what you believe the failure will be in a greater population. Uh, the Crow-Duane-AMSA is something you can do in that program that helps you track the progression of growth of the, of the, the product. And that can be very helpful because if you are at a time in the program, let's say you know there's 12 months left of the product development program before release, and you've demonstrated a 30% statistical confidence at this point, um, and you have you know a year left, uh, based on the rate you are improving the product, you know the way the, that the reliability growth confidence is growing, will you be at your target a year later when you're going to release? And that's where the uh, Dwayne AMSA is very helpful. Um, it's a statistic that's a log log, so you can just take the um, the slope of the of the output and um, put it. There's a chart you can put it right against where you can take that slope, and it actually has a verbal description of you know if you're on target, not on target, call for backup. The last one's not true. Um, uh, would it? make more sense to use MTBF instead of mean time to failure? Well, the fundamental difference between mean time between failure and mean time to failure is if the system is repaired. Um, so that's, I mean, that, that generally is the beginning of why you would select one metric or the other. Okay, great, that's the last question there right now. Um, so getting tunnel vision. As engineers, we always look for data validation. Um, numbers give us confidence, you know, they're objective. Uh, they give us some quantitative truth, but focusing too much on a raw number can also be misleading. It's like not seeing the forest through the trees, which when you have a very common expression like that, there's usually some pretty solid truth um, and high frequency of it occurring. So analysts who focus too much on a metric without stepping back can lose sight of the bigger picture. And I would love for people to share their experiences with that, where you, you know, you yourself or your team got hyper-focused on a metric. And to some degree, what happens is you lose sight of the value of the metric. And uh, this is where I always, you know, people who know me always know I do my I word, the intention word. Are you staying true to the intention of, you know, the initiative? So the intention would have, or, you know, hopefully driven what metric you selected. Is it Statistical confidence is a percent reliability. Is it mean time to fail? You know, mean time between failure is at risk. And you selected that metric because that's what the information that is going to be valuable to somebody. This somebody could be leadership. This somebody could be the engineering team. It could be the designers. It could be to suppliers. Now things change in programs, and if we just keep driving hard with that original metric, um, and the landscape has changed. Um, we may be providing information that's not of value to anybody. And this is what I call the change between information that is pulled and information that is pushed. Information that is pulled is extremely valuable. Information that is pushed is not very valuable. And uh, a good example of this is I once had a mentor tell me, he said that um, unsolicited advice is being told to you uh, for the value of the person giving the advice. It's not to the person receiving it. Solicited advice 
is of value. The person wants the information. And that's the difference between pushed and pulled information. And if you get that feeling that the reporting on a metric has changed to that, uh, then it's time to stop and uh, reevaluate it. I also have more than one keyboard going here, so that is okay. Um, so uh, a false causality. Uh, this is making a connection between a cause and effect that doesn't have much of a real link. Um, other than being driven by a knee-jerk reaction. Um, I probably don't even have to give examples of this for you to understand it. Um, I'm quite confident each of you have done this at some times or witnessed it, or probably both. Um, but, you know, I, of course, I am going to give examples. So, um, Bill coming to, uh, coming to class causes the bell to ring, right? There's no relation bet between these two other than they are both on a similar schedule, but one does not cause the other. Depression causes terminal illness. You know, this one is simply backwards. Volunteering causes you to get better grades in college. The real correlation is that individuals who are diligent about extracurricular activities are good at being intentional and organized. These are also good traits for studying. So you're getting two outcomes from the same source, um, but one does not drive the other um, you know, definitively. And here's an actual next of real life example that I thought was interesting that also um, you know, shows that that specific um, type of false causality. So a study was done and they saw that uh, more uh, households that had more books uh, uh, that had children that were better readers. So uh, th this was probably about 20 years ago and there was a, a big initiative to figure out how to bring up the reading level of you know, children in public schools. Um, so the result um, was that they decided that uh, the best thing to do was to provide books um, to households of, you know, people who were reading, you know, for children who were not reading at the level they should be. So they started a very big program with, you know, book donation and, and delivery. And what they found after a period of time is this had absolutely no effect on improving children's reading. And they, they couldn't figure out why, because there was a clear correlation in the data. In fact, the difference in reading levels was because parents who often read to their children, which is a true factor in affecting, uh, you know, reading ability, those parents who read to their children at home compared to those who didn't um, were much more likely to have books in the house because they read more themselves and, you know, saw value in making sure, in making sure there were books for the family that were of interest. So it was a secondary artifact um, that the, the books being in the house, uh, you know, would in fact drive uh, better reading levels for kids. So it's kind of interesting that you can imagine the amount of money and time that was spent and, uh, you know, there would, there would be no results to be found because there was a false causality. Does anybody have any good examples of false, ca false causality? I mean, that's always a fun one um, with lots of crazy examples. You know, there's things like uh, eating ice cream um, causes more crime, right? But when in fact that warmer temperatures, uh, you know, bring bring people outside, you know, more often and that for some reason that there's a, you know, activities, there's a correlation between that and crime and, and eating ice cream, but they obviously don't uh, truly correlate. So I'll give a second to see if anybody wants to share any false causalities. 
Okay, it looks like I don't see anybody at the the moment, but if one does pop up, I'll take a moment to read it. <clears throat> All right, next one is lack of statistical significance. I hope you're finding these pictures very peaceful and calming, again, in case any of these uh, common data issues are, are triggering any uh, past, uh, past bad experiences. Um, it has nothing to do with me not being able to think of good graphics for these different categories. Um, actually, it's not true. I did think it was, it was anyway. Okay, so uh, lack of statistical significance. Uh, you've run a test, you've gathered your data, and you have a clear winner, but make sure not to draw your conclusions too early without real statistical significance. This mistake is common when running conversion A-B tests where the outcomes might seem obvious at first often with one test outperforming another, but it's important not to rush to a conclusion too early. Make sure you have high probability and true statistical significance in order to identify the winning variation. For example, when executing A-B tests, it's recommended to have a 96% probability and a minimum of 50 conversion per variant to determine a clear outcome. Oh, yeah, here's another. Somebody did bring up a good one. Eating ice cream causes uh, shark attacks. Um, that uh, That is definitely one that I believe that you probably could find data to back that up. It's also true that the best time to go swimming in the ocean is during shark week because most of the sharks are on TV uh, doing their work that week. All right, so let's uh, take a look at another. Outliers. So outliers should be either focused or ignored. So it doesn't sound like helpful, a helpful piece of advice. Um, which should it be, focused or ignored? I think what I'm trying to get to there uh, is to say it's important to think about how to treat outliers specific to each analysis. There's no solid rule of thumb that can be applied across the board. You should take time to try and understand what the outliers are about. Don't just leave them in the data set and treat them like regular data points. So when would you focus on them? When our testing objectives are with a small sample size or we are in pursuit of an odd behavior, like a failure mode. So when should you ignore an outlier? If it doesn't fit with the outcome you were hoping for, no, I'm just kidding, uh, don't do that. Um, share it and get as much input from others on it before you uh, do anything, before you throw it out. Um, it's tragic if you chuck a single data point that has a good story to tell. Sometimes those can actually be the, the, the real value out of uh, the data set or the test. I think the guideline for ignoring an outlier is the guilty until proven innocent strategy. That outlier has to prove it should be freed from the data set. If it can't, then it stays, no matter how uncomfortable it feels having it there. So see, are there any more questions? Okay, here we go. A-B testing in survival analysis, how is it relevant? Can you please elaborate? Um, so let's see, I was with the A-B testing, 
Um, with the A-B testing, the what we're hoping to do is to see if there's a statistical significance, you know, uh, in comparison to the actual variability that can occur in a regular population. Uh, this is usually calculated with a, uh, a p-value. Um, so I'm trying to understand by how is it relevant. Um, so you know, so simply then in that case. Um, it's making conclusions on the fact you simply have uh, one set that is greater than the other, but without having accounted for any statistical significance, it could be within the normal variability. And if a test like an A-B test was run again, it could show to be the other way. So we always want to compare it to the variability within the population. All right, well, that is what I wanted to share with you today about the survivor bias principle and some other um, principles associated with uh, data analysis and that can uh, lead you, you know, th that can be common errors or mistakes. Um, I'd love to answer any other questions if anybody else would like to add a question. All right, I don't see any right now, but of course, feel free to reach out to me. Um, more than happy to continue this discussion. It's a very interesting topic. And thank you very much for attending today. And um, I look forward to uh, doing a webinar with you in the future. Take care. Bye.